If you brought your Bibles with you this morning, if you'll open them to Psalm 95. We're continuing our summer sermon series of seeking to find God in the middle, in the middle of the Bible, which happens to be the Psalms, and in the middle of all types of different situations and circumstances, this morning finding Him in the middle of our worship. Now, that might strike you as odd. You might say, well, that's rather obvious, isn't it? Of course we'll find Him there. Throughout the history of the church, Psalm 95 has been used uh, as a guide to worship, uh, instructions for worship, a how-to for worship as we would come into His presence. And again, maybe that's a little odd. Maybe that just sounds obvious to you. Do we really need instructions for that? Perhaps you've run across some really obvious instructions uh, in your life. Maybe a a tube of toothpaste that says, number one, remove cap. Uh, Or a jar of peanuts that has a warning label on it. Caution, contains peanuts. Right? I've got pictures of two of my favorites. Here's the first one on some child's garment. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, that was the step I was missing, right? Or this one, or this. I, I'm, glad, I'm glad they printed that there because that was the first thing that I was going to attempt to do. But when you see ridiculous and obvious instructions and warnings like that, you know why they're there. Because somewhere, somebody, (laughs) Psalm 95 has instructions and a warning. And as we read it this morning, you might be tempted to brush it aside as too obvious, too familiar, something you think you've got down pat, but stop and consider they're in Scripture for a reason because somebody, somewhere, and perhaps it's us right now, needs them. So stand if you're able for the reading of God's Word, Psalm 95, these 11 verses. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into His presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to Him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In His hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are His also. The sea is His, for He made it. And his hands formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test And put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. This is God's inspired, 
inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word. Let's pray for help in understanding it now. Oh, Father, would you help us this morning? Holy Spirit, would you come and would you be our teacher? Would you help our eyes and our ears and our minds and most importantly our hearts to understand the truth that's contained in these verses? Would you give our, the, our hearts the desire to want to follow and obey our wills, the strength that they need. Help us, we pray. In Christ's name and for his sake, amen. Please have a seat. I thought this morning I'd do something slightly different and show you a little of how I came to understand what's going on in this psalm. And, and it's really not much more than just basic Bible study methodology. And so I'll allow this to also be a little advertisement and shameless plug of what we're going to do in Sunday school beginning in September. Uh, The adults and the youth are going to combine in a class together um, that's essentially just going to be a Bible study practicum. We're going to sit around tables together uh, and I and perhaps some others are going to guide you through studying some various passages. using some methods, using some tools. We're just going to study God's Word together. Uh, Here's one of the things that I did for this passage. Uh, As I got started in this psalm, it became pretty apparent that a couple of lists would be helpful, that they would be in order. Um, One list of who God is. Did you see so many of those attributes of God as we read through? So many things, uh, item after item, who God is, how he's described, his character, his actions. So that's going to be one list. And then the second list would be of the verbs, the activities that we're commanded to do to participate in. So this first list here of, uh, of who God is, is the first list there. And you don't necessarily need to write it down. You could underline these things maybe in your bulletin uh, in the text there if you wanted to. But here's the things that we see who the Lord is. He's, number one, he's the Lord. He's the rock of our salvation. He's a great God. He's also a great king. He's our maker. He's our God. We see that How he's referred to here means he's our shepherd. He's also a God of wrath and a God of rest. And so these things are going to come into play as we work through the psalm and seek to understand it. All these things that we see God has revealed himself as. Now, the second list, right? If if this sermon is how to worship, right, then these lists of verbs, these activities, they're going to come into play as well. Remember, we've got to come right? We've got to sing. We've got to make a joyful noise. That's there actually twice. We're coming, we're singing with thanksgiving. We're coming with praise. The actual verb there, the command worship is there. Bowing down, kneeling, and not hardening our hearts. Now, with this list here, I want you to see how I've grouped these together and really saw the outline begin to take shape. Um, Go to the next slide for me. There we go. 
So four different things here to see how our outline takes shape. We've got to come together in order to lift him high that he might bring us low and so that end result would be that we would have soft hearts that experience his rest. All right, so let's begin together with that first one. Verse 1, O come. All right, now, is this an obvious part of the instruction? Right, does this need to be here? It does, actually. Because there is a tendency for us to not come. There's a tendency for us to develop a, a laziness. Y'all, we're not going to just drift into worship. We have to decide to do it. We have to commit to do it. We have to even prepare to do it. There's got to be some purpose behind it. It's not just going to happen. And so that's the first rather obvious, but I would argue needful part of, uh, of our learning how to worship is that we've got to come. And the second obvious but needful part is we've got to come together. In these first two verses, four times, let us. Oh, come, let us sing. Oh, come, let us make a joyful noise. Oh, let us come into his presence. The psalmist could have very easily put this in first person singular. He could have said, oh, come, let me make a joyful noise, but he didn't. Our worship needs to be corporate. Our worship needs to be in the community of the believers. Now, maybe inside you're already objecting a little bit and I say, wait a minute, I can worship on my own. I can worship in my, in my quiet time each day. And of course you can. Of course you can. But y'all, that's the icing on the cake. That's not the cake itself. Right? What, what we do in private worship is no substitute for what we do together. There's got to be an us-ness to our worship. And at the end, I'm going to circle back around and tell you why that is so very critical. All right, so we're coming together. What are we coming together to do? Point number two, we're coming together to lift him high. And here's where all the things in that one list, the verbs, the actions that we're to be engaged with, and all the things in the other list about who he is, here's where they meet. Here is where they meet. These verbs describe exuberant rejoicing. They describe celebration. Now, why? Why? Verse 3, 4. All right, here's your purpose word. Here's another basic Bible study thing to be on the lookout for. Look for these purpose words, the fours and the therefores and the becauses. They're there for a reason. 
We're engaging in all the activity of worship because of who God is and what he's done. And when I looked down that list of all of who he is and what he's done, there were three things that that began to jump out at me, three things that lead us to worship, three things that lead us to lift him high in exuberant celebration, the first of which is just the scale, the scale of who he is, the magnitude. Look at verses 3 and 4. How great he is. How big he is. His greatness transcends everything else that we know. Anything else that we could seek to compare him to doesn't hold a candle. All the little G gods of the world, none of them comes close. So the first thing is his scale. His grandeur, His majesty, His greatness. The second thing that I notice through all these things is His, his primacy, his, his preeminence, His firstness, right? Verses 5 and 6, right? He came first. He had no beginning. No one created Him, but He created everything that exists. Right, My being, my flesh and blood and breath and heartbeats. I can't claim responsibility for any of that. I can't take credit. That's all him. My very existence is due to another. And as the maker of all, that means he's worthy of our worship and our praise. He's worthy for us to lift him high. The third thing that emerged in this list, and this is the thing that really ought to take your breath away, is that in light of his majestic greatness, that he made everything from nothing, and yet, verse 7, he's our God. Despite how Very far above us he is, he stooped down and decided to live in covenant relationship with us to be our God. Not that God, our God, our Father, no less. Our shepherd, as he's described here. Tending us as a shepherd tends his sheep, gathering, as the prophet Isaiah said, his lambs into his arms. See, as we lift him high in this exuberant celebration of who he is and how great and how glorious and how wonderful, that ought to turn into jaw-dropping awe when you think about that a great God like that would stoop low to us, to know us, and to love us like he has. That's one of the many things that ought to bring us low, that ought to humble us deeply. So in this third point, we lift him high that he might bring us low. And you see, genuine worship takes both. It takes both. And maybe you've even noticed that's how we order our worship each week. That we would celebrate 
who he is, that we'd lift him high for his greatness and his glory and his grandeur, and then we would be brought low. And that's just, that's the natural progression. That's what the psalmist does here. That's what we do in our worship, that we would have both exuberant rejoicing and humble submission. Look at the verbs used in verse 6. Three verbs, worship, which just literally, its literal translation is bow down, right? Then another verb that also means bow down, and then a verb that means kneel. So three different verbs, all expressing the same thing. And that is the natural next step after considering the greatness of God. After lifting him high, considering who he is and what he's done, we're brought low. We are humbled in that process. See, in a very real sense, part of what we're worshiping him for, lifting him high about, is his ability. He's able, right? He's capable. And in the white hot light of who he is and his ability, we begin to see oh so clearly who we are and our inability. See, the focus on his worthiness underscores our unworthiness. It's so deeply humbling. He's the creator of the universe. Why would he stoop down Why would he take on flesh and suffer and bleed and die to pay the punishment for our rebellion against who he is as creator of the universe? If that doesn't humble you deeply, if that doesn't bring you low, you must still be dead on the inside. To hear of his gracious, astounding, amazing intervention on our behalf to rescue us from the slavery of sin and death, if that doesn't cause you to paradoxically at the same time be singing his praises at the top of your lungs and face down on the floor before him, then you must have a heart of stone. And perhaps that's exactly the case. Point number four, we need soft hearts to enter his rest. At the end of verse seven, this psalm takes a turn. And it's, it's a dark turn. All of this talk of jubilant praise and singing joyful noises, and even humble kneeling and bowing down. Let's read the end of this again, starting at the second half of verse 7. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on that day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation, that um. That's an okay translation. In that loathing, there's an element of disgust. 
and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Y'all, that's tough. That almost doesn't seem to fit with the verses that came before. It's led many uh, astute Bible scholars to suggest that these are are two different things and, and some editor put them together. But it does fit. And, and these heavy verses at the end are a needful and a necessary postscript concerning our worship because, y'all, we can have great worship. We can lift Him high. We can be exuberant in our celebration. We can even be brought low for a time, humbled by His greatness and His grace to us, and we can still end up with hard hearts like the Israelites at Meribah and Massa. All right, so what's going on here with that reference? Where are these places? What's going on? Exodus 17. You don't necessarily have to turn there now. I'd encourage you to look later. God's people are in the wilderness, and they're complaining to Moses about a lack of water. And here's what we have in 17 verses 4 through 7. They're complaining. So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel. Because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Now, if you're not familiar with the whole of the story, you might find this to be a little extreme. Right? What's the big deal about complaining about not having water to drink? Why would that cause the Lord to say he loathed that generation? Well, I think the key to our understanding this is at the end of verse 9 in the psalm that we're looking at. They tested me, they put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. All right, here's an astute observation for you. Exodus 17 comes after Exodus 12 through 16. Okay, Learn that in seminary. So, what happens in those chapters? Well, chapter 12 is the Passover. All right. Every single firstborn child in all of Egypt died that night, with the exception of the firstborns of the Israelites who were taking shelter under the blood of the sacrificial lamb. Chapter 14, they crossed over the Red Sea on dry land while the Egyptian army chased them. After they got through, the waters came back together and the entire Egyptian army drowned. Chapter 15, they're dying of thirst. They came upon water, but it was bitter. So the Lord gave a log to Moses that he threw in the water and made it sweet. 
chapter 16. They were hungry, and the Lord causes bread to rain out of the sky. That's why in chapter 17, when they're thirsty again, and they complain that they don't have any water, as if they have no idea who might come to their rescue again and meet their needs and provide for them. God is not happy with them. He knows what their complaining is revealing. That last verse in the Exodus passage, right? Their complaining is really just asking this doubt-filled question, is the Lord among us or not? And that doubt is the sign of a hard heart. Because you see, hard hearts don't trust the goodness and the love of God. Hard hearts don't take him at his word. Hard hearts don't believe his promises. Hard hearts forget about his past provision and grace. Y'all, those, those exodus events that I just described, they didn't take place over the span of several years. It was but a few days. Complaining of thirst on the heels of the death angel passing over them. On the heels of the sea swallowing up their fiercest enemies. Their hard hearts were forgetful and ungrateful. And so the psalmist gives us this warning today. Today, if you hear his voice, which of course for us is hearing the very words of Scripture, words that say, I'm your God. I will never leave you or forsake you. I will meet all your needs. I will always be faithful to you. Hear his voice today. Don't harden your heart any further by refusing to listen. When we refuse to listen to God's word, when we refuse to take him at his word, it only makes the hardness of our hearts harder. When we refuse to be purposeful in our remembering and in our giving thanks, See, y'all, that's a mighty weapon against a hard heart. It's so simple and so powerful. Listing all the ways he's been faithful to me in the past. Listing all the ways he's provided for me and shown up. Recounting all his attributes, all his greatness, all his ability kind of looking back over the list that I had made, especially one about his attributes and and what he's doing, thinking about his ability and our inability. And y'all, one of the surefire ways of hardening your heart 
would be to make light of either his ability or our inability. When we begin to discount either of those, we're in trouble. When we begin to let doubt creep in about his power and his might and his faithfulness, or we begin to get a little overconfident about our ability to fix the situation that we're in, our hearts are hardening. The ultimate, most deadly example of heart hardening must be to not listen to his voice when it comes to his provision for our salvation. His voice that says, there is no one good, there is no one who understands, no one who seeks me. That voice that says, you are dead in your transgressions and sins. That voice that says, the only way for you to have life is to trust that Jesus was sacrificed as your sacrificial lamb in your place. That voice that says, all you can do is receive this as a free gift. That voice that says, you've got no part in earning this, in deserving it. You can never begin to pay it back. That voice that says, Jesus accomplished all you will ever need. It is finished. It is complete. So instead of working for your salvation, will you not just rest in what he's done? That's the rest the psalmist is ultimately speaking of here at the end of the psalm. For the Israelites who were wandering in the wilderness, there was a rest that was promised, an intermediate rest, if you will, the land of Canaan, the promised land, where once they got there, there would be no more battling their enemies, there would be no more being pursued by their enemies, they could rest. But that rest was only foreshadowing our greatest real rest that we have in Jesus, that we are no longer pursued by our enemies of sin and death. Jesus defeated them for us once and for all, and we can rest forever in his finished work. The writer, of the Hebrew, writer to the Hebrews picks up on that in chapters 3 and 4 of Hebrews, which I would encourage you to read both of those chapters quotes a large chunk of Psalm 95. And then he has this to say, just these two verses in chapter 3. Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. I want to close by pointing out two things to you here. Number one is don't brush this psalm and this warning aside thinking you don't need the warning, thinking that you're okay, that this heart hardening couldn't possibly happen to you. I want you to think about the timeline here. Think about the warning to the Israelites first. Right? The Israelites' hearts were hardened days after seeing 
miraculous things from the Lord. Their hearts were hard. Then we've got this warning again in Psalm 95. So hundreds of years later, there were other folks whose hearts were hard. They had forgotten. They were not grateful. Their hearts were hard. They were in danger. Several more hundred years later in the New Testament church, the writer to the Hebrews is calling up Psalm 95, calling up this Exodus account. Because there were those in the church of that day whose hearts were hard, ungrateful, forgetful, putting the Lord to the test. Here we are some 2,000 years later. Don't push it aside. The second final thing that I want to point out to you goes back to our first point. I told you I was going to circle back to that. Take care brothers and sisters. Y'all, we need each other in this process. We need each other to worship. We absolutely need each other because of the hardness of our hearts. Y'all, we are no good at detecting the hardness of our own heart. We are self-deceived. We are fooled. And we need each other. We need each other. Brothers and sisters, if there's in any of you an unbelieving heart, we need the exhortations, the reminders, the encouragement, even the rebukes of our brothers and sisters Say, you're forgetting. You're forgetting how good he is. You're forgetting how good he's been to you. Let me just remind you of some of the things that I'm even aware of that he's been good to you. Y'all, we need that. We need that. We need to come together. We need to lift him high. We need to allow him to bring us low. And if we're going to have soft hearts, that's going to happen in the context of community. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning who's not enjoying your rest, who's not enjoying the bliss, the sublime bliss of resting in what Christ has absolutely finished and completed, Lord, by Your Spirit, would You draw them into that rest this morning? Would You bring their strivings, their efforts, their work, their determination, would You bring it all to an end as they fling themselves fully and completely on Jesus? God, help us to worship You as You are worthy of being worshipped. Help us to come with both praise and gratitude. Help us to have hearts that are not forgetful, but that purposefully remember all that You've done. And Father, where we are prone to forget, may our brothers and sisters come alongside of us and help us to remember. 
Give us soft hearts that enjoy your rest. We pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.